Hey everyone, so there's a wacky clip about witches I want to give my take on, but first I just wanted to quickly run through some corrections or clarifications regarding the last episode. The one entitled Thoughts on Joe Rogan Controversies, Candace Owens Wrong About Bob Saget, and Jordan Peterson on the Bible. Wow, long title. Uh, I would have just given you the episode number, but Apple and podcast numbering, that's a whole nother can of worms. Uh, Anyway, let's try to get through these. And some of these are admittedly pretty minor. The episode in question was completely unscripted, and in some cases I just simply misspoke. And this first one is probably a good example. I was talking about Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path, and I referred to the Eightfold Path as the quote-unquote sacred Eightfold Path instead of the noble Eightfold Path, which is what it's more commonly called. Maybe on some semi-conscious level, I felt like calling them both noble was redundant. Uh, Who knows? And then in passing, I mentioned the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the Bible, which was, I think still is, the Catholic Church's Bible of choice, so to speak. And the way I worded it may have sounded like I was saying the word Vulgate itself means Latin Bible, but what I meant was if you hear someone say Vulgate, they're referring to a Latin translation of the Bible used by the church. The etymological root of the word is also where we get our word vulgar. Um, to us, vulgar means something like crude or crass, but the Latin root means something like common. And there's a couple of related Latin words or terms that come into play. Vulgare, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, which means common or commonplace. And then vulgus, which means common people. And then versio vulgata, which which I think means common version, etc., etc. But you get the point. It's the book commonly used. That's why it's called the Vulgate. And that was pretty dicey, talking about whether or not the laity in the Middle Ages, etc., were banned or prohibited from reading or owning the Bible. I think that's probably one of those things you hear, but as I stated in the episode, it's more nuanced or complicated than that. The church didn't want people messing around with unauthorized translations or so-called vernacular Bibles, but it also depends on what specific edicts or prohibitions were in place at what particular time, etc. But supposedly the laity were free to access the Vulgate, which of course was the version authorized by the church. But it should probably also be kept in mind that just because you had access to the Bible, you know, um, most people in the Middle Ages were illiterate. And so if people wanted to know what was in the Bible, you know, that's what church was for. And on a related note, there was this little fun fact that I learned years and years ago that always really stuck with me. I just found it really interesting. And that's that One of the main purposes of stained glass was to help educate the laity about the Bible. You know, since they couldn't read, they could see the images of the the Bible stories, etc. Very fascinating, I think. I actually might do a little documentary episode on the history of stained glass at some point. I think that would be pretty cool. But the slip-up I made in that episode that bothered me the most was... I was talking about the influence of Greek philosophy on the early church or early Christian thought. I said, quote-unquote, especially Aristotle, 
And I was listening back and I was like, oh shit, it's one of those things where I knew what was correct, but I just had some kind of brain glitch and misspoke. Early on, it was Plato, not Aristotle, that had the biggest influence. And then from about the 13th century on with Aquinas, etc., you have the heavy influence of Aristotle. And I've said before on the show, there's kind of a trade-off when you're trying to decide whether to do something scripted or unscripted. On the one hand, there's a sense of authenticity and perhaps human warmth that you get with unscripted content. It feels like you're listening to a person's honest, you know, un unfiltered, naturally emerging thoughts. But the price or trade-off is, and this is just part of being human, people sometimes misspeak, misremember things, search and fail to find the right words in the moment, and unintentionally, you know, phrase things incorrectly or awkwardly. And then comes the need for the clarifications and corrections, you know, and that's how we got here. Uh, with scripted material, on the other hand, you can polish the script, refine what you're going to say ahead of time, avoid all the ums and ahs, etc., verbal leakage, I think they call it. Um, but the cost there is that you run the risk of things sounding kind of cold or overly prepared. Uh, great for documentary episodes, perhaps not so much for topical or news story stuff. Well, it all depends. Obviously, when you're watching the news, you know, that's all been pre-prepared. But me, as an independent content creator, I like to take a more kind of relaxed or casual approach to uh, news story episodes. Just kind of read them and kind of chuckle at the crazy parts and give you my honest thoughts as I go, you know? But I brought up the subject of the Bible in case you missed the last episode because I was responding to Jordan Peterson's most recent appearance on Joe Rogan's podcast in which he made the assertion that the Bible, according to him, at least in Western society, he does offer that caveat, is the foundation for our shared human understanding. I'm kind of paraphrasing there, but I believe it's close, or that's the correct gist. And what he meant by that is that since the Bible, and he rightly points out that technically the Bible is an anthology, it's a collection of books, uh, ta biblia, I think, in the Greek, right? Something like that. But since the, uh, gonna have to issue another correction next week, probably. But since the Bible is or was the predominant or foundational work of literature in Western culture or society, and this was the point that Peterson was trying to make that I'm voicing here. But he is right in the sense that for a long time, you know, prior to the printing press, etc., it was kind of the only game in town in Christian Europe. And since, uh, and this is the point he was trying to make that I'm continuing with, uh, and since it influenced other subsequent important literary works, like those of Dante and Shakespeare. And speaking of Dante, this just occurred to me. Uh, I was trying to make the point in the last episode that, you know, there were other influences on Western culture than just the Bible and Christianity. Not that he's saying, you know, I don't want to erect a straw man here. Not that he's saying there weren't any other influences. But even um, literary influences I'm talking about. Um, and a great example is Dante. And it was Peterson who mentioned Dante and Shakespeare by name. But Dante was so heavily influenced by Virgil, the pre-Christian Roman poet who uh, wrote the Aeneid, that he actually cast Virgil as his guide in the Divine Comedy. 
So right there, for what it's worth, you know, an example of a pre-Christian pagan literary influence. But Peterson was trying to make the point that since the Bible is so foundational, that we in the Western world see the world and come to truth through a Judeo-Christian lens. And so as he puts it, the Bible isn't just true, it's quote-unquote truer than true, because it's the precondition for the manifestation of truth. And he goes on to say that this theory of his about the Bible is the only way to solve the problem of perception. And so, as you can imagine, I took issue with these assertions to a degree. Uh, I'm sure there's probably a lot of Christians who don't mind Jordan Peterson's line of thinking here, and I'm not blaming them who doesn't want to hear or be told that their holy book is truer than true. And of course, it should be noted that it would be incredibly intellectually dishonest to ignore the tremendous influence that Christianity and the Bible have had on Western culture. For better or worse, you could probably argue it's a mixed bag, but that's a topic for another episode. But to claim the Bible is the key to how we understand each other as human beings, or that it's truer than true, or that viewing the Bible is the key to our common understanding is the only way to solve the problem of perception, it's a bit much. And there were a number of things that I touched on in response in the last episode, like the fact that although Christianity is an offshoot of Judaism, it flowered or developed in the Hellenistic or Greco-Roman world. Early Christian thinkers and church fathers, as I was alluding to earlier during the corrections, were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, and I think some scholars have actually proposed that parts of the New Testament, as strange as it might sound, I think uh, especially or specifically the Gospel of Luke and Acts as well, I think, uh, may have possibly been influenced by Homer. So there's, you know, Greek literary influence too. And biblical or New Testament scholars sometimes refer to Luke and Acts as Luke-Acts because the writing styles are so similar. It's thought that they may have been written by the same author, Luke, who was a Gentile convert to Christianity and who was also a physician. And uh, it was believed that he was a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. Uh, based on the writing style, it's thought that whoever wrote Luke-Acts, uh, no reason to think it wasn't Luke, as far as I know, that they were probably highly educated and very familiar with Greek literature and Greek writing styles. But in my own rambling, digression-laden way, I'm trying to make a point about outside influences that shaped Christianity, you know, that Christianity didn't emerge in a vacuum, and that there's pre-Christian influence on Western culture. And, you know, in a sense, not only is the Bible not the foundation of everything, but the Bible itself was influenced by various other traditions. Uh, you know, we can go back to the Old Testament and the influence of ancient Mesopotamian religion, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, and that kind of thing. And then I also mentioned, you know, regarding other influences on Western culture other than the Bible, that there's the pre-existing languages because as part of his theory, Peterson talks about language and nested meanings and associations, but the pre-existing languages and cultures, beliefs and traditions 
of the European peoples that would eventually become Christianized. You know, probably things like folk stories carried on through oral tradition, pagan customs and ideas, etc., that continued to endure even after the advent or spread of Christianity. And as someone who's long been enamored with mythology and ancient pagan cultures, etc., I've always loved those little reminders that are still hanging around, uh, like the pagan roots of some of our holidays. And as I've talked about ad nauseum on the show over the years, there was this policy or tradition of the church to kind of Christianize or assimilate um, you know, pagan traditions or graft Christian observances onto pagan holidays. So Halloween, you know, basically the Celtic Samhain, Christmas heavily influenced by the Nordic Yule, and also um, you can go back to ancient Rome. I was talking about December 25th and all that on the show recently, uh, the calculation hypothesis versus December 25th as the birth of Mithras, and also uh, the possible influence of Saturnalia. And then Easter, it's thought that's basically named after a German goddess, a German fertility goddess. And that I've always really loved the fact that our weekdays are basically named after Germanic or Nordic gods. Um, you have Monday, which I think is Mani, Mani or Manny, the personification of the moon. Tuesday, Tear. Ouch, a wolf just bit my hand off. Uh, Wednesday, Odin, of course, or Woden, Wotan. Uh, Thursday, Thor. Come on, uh, everyone loves Thor, right? And then Friday, uh, Frigg or Frigga, um, Odin's wife. And I also made the point that from an evolutionary perspective, our species, modern humans, has been around for roughly 300,000 years. In comparison, the writings that comprise the Bible, if you include the oldest books of the Old Testament, go back roughly maybe 3,000 years, uh, probably less. I think much of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible was thought to have been written or produced during the Babylonian captivity, so 6th century BCE, right? But the stories were probably based on oral tradition and writings that went back even earlier. The earliest writings of the New Testament, in contrast, of course, only going back to the first century CE, Common Era. So only two or three or somewhere approaching 3,000 years, uh, 5th to 8th century, you know, BCE, uh, depending which books you're talking about. So yeah, compare that to the roughly 300,000 years our species has been around. My point being, we've only had these books for a minuscule fraction of our collective existence, and nevertheless, we obviously managed to survive and endure all that time without them. And I think that's because we're an evolved species of social animal. And I also think that's where a lot of our ability to understand one another and work together comes from. You know, birds don't need a holy book to know to congregate together on a lawn, or chimpanzees to engage in reciprocal behavior like grooming or to band together in troops. And I'm not trying to sugarcoat things. As I've always said, you know, I think we're a mixed bag. I think we've evolved with a capacity for empathy, altruism, group cooperation, but also tribalism and violence. And I think the morality in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, with its healthy sprinkling of tribalistic violence, is probably what you'd expect from a species of evolved ape. I don't know if it was Christopher Hitchens or if he was quoting someone else, but I think I remember him saying that, 
in a sense, you could say the Bible or religion gets its morality from us, not the other way around. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But to be fair, I think there's probably also a kind of feedback loop effect, too, where our naturally evolved primate moral sense probably, you know, informed the morality of our man-made holy books and religions. But then these religions and texts with their own particular character and their specific prohibitions and mores and collected stories, um, then in turn, you know, further culturally shape or refine our moral sense or worldview, for better or worse, depending on what's in them. But I think it's an oversimplification to suggest, as Peterson did on Rogan's show, that because a particular culture has a shared holy book that informs their worldview, in this case the Bible, that it makes it quote-unquote truer than true. And like I said in that episode, I think if you read between the lines, you can see what he's trying to do. He's obviously, you know, he has a strong Christian bias, so he's using this argument or line of thinking to say not only is the Bible true, it's truer than true. And once again, in fairness to Peterson, he does add the caveat that this is within the context of Western Christian society. But then I'm thinking, well, if it's contextual or relative, you know, so what? Then you can say the Bhagavad Gita or the Vedas are truer than true for Hindus, you know, or the people of India. Or even though, like Christianity and Judaism, Islam is an Abrahamic faith, um, with the importance Muslims place on the Quran and how foundational it is to them, you could say the Quran is truer than true. And I guess figuratively you could say in a sense that they're all truer than true, and then that could lead into a discussion perhaps about universal themes or universal uh, symbolism or symbols. And I think uh, Peterson is into Jung, so you could probably talk about archetypes, you know, etc. But he obviously, once again, seems to be specifically partial to the Judeo-Christian tradition. And that's the worldview he's trying to endorse or shore up with this theory. And there's nothing wrong with being partial to Christianity. People should be free to embrace or favor any faith or ideology they like. The problem for me is when he assumes or speaks with this air of authority as if what he's saying is factually true and proceeds to say things like the Bible is truer than true or that this theory of his is the only way to solve the problem of perception. But anyway, let's talk about witches. So there's a Tennessee preacher by the name of Greg Locke who recently railed against witches in front of his congregation. And this story or clip has been floating around for a week or two now, but I'm just getting around to covering it. So hopefully it doesn't seem too stale at this point. I think it's so ridiculous and over the top that should still prove entertaining, but here it is. We got first and last names of six witches that are in our church. And you know what's strange? Three of you are in this room right now. We ain't afraid of you, you stinking witch. You devil-worshiping Satanist witch. We cast you out in the name of Jesus Christ. We break your spells. We break your curse. We got your first name. We got your last name. We even got an address for one of you. You so much as cough wrong, and I'll expose you in front of everybody in this tent, you stinking witch. 
You were sent to this church to destroy us. You were sent to this church to lure us in. You were sent to this church to cast spells. Listen, some of you been sick because you befriended that witch. Okay, so I've watched that clip a few times now, and I think the first thing that jumped out at me, other than just how cartoonishly over the top it was, was this seeming combination of rampant superstition. It's the year 2022, and this guy's raving about witches like it's 17th century Salem. But this mixture of rampant superstition, combined with a kind of mean-spiritedness, or lack of any sort of Christian compassion... There was no, oh, you poor girls, you must have just lost your way. Come on forward, we're gonna pray for you, Jesus gonna heal you now. And it was like, we're not afraid of you, you stinking witch, you know? Almost like these supposed witches aren't even human beings deserving of being saved, you know, within the Christian worldview. Well, the Bible does say, thou shall not suffer a witch to live. I actually saw a Heretz article on that passage in Exodus and how it might be a, tra a mystery translation, I might do a little mini episode on that. And I found myself wondering, as many of you probably are, whether or not this story Greg Locke, you know, was spinning is even true. Well, we can probably all agree that most likely there weren't any actual supernatural spellcasters in his congregation. But I mean, is this just something he concocted to spice up this little show he puts on for his congregation and give him an excuse to talk tough and thump his chest? I ain't afraid of no stinking witch. Or, and this is kind of reminiscent of Salem, are there real girls or women in his congregation who are being, you know, falsely accused of witchcraft or maybe dabbling in the occult? He mentioned sage, so maybe individuals who didn't intend any harm, but were maybe messing around with kind of psychic or new agey kind of stuff, and someone found out and started gossiping or ratted them out. And it's funny, even though, as I imagine most of you are aware, I'm a non-believer, I was raised Catholic. And even though we were told not to mess around with anything like that as kids, we were told to steer clear of anything having to do with the occult, tarot cards, Ouija boards, all that. Yet nevertheless, I know Christians, some in my own family, who see no conflict in considering themselves Christian, wearing little gold crosses around their necks, etc., and at the same time going to psychics, having tarot readings, some having had psychics come over with, you know, sage or smudge sticks, or whatever they're called, and uh, cleanse their houses. Um, not that I care. Once again, skeptic, non-believer. I strongly doubt the existence of the supernatural. But I still nevertheless find topics like demonology and the occult deeply fascinating. I'm just saying there is some cognitive dissonance, or many Christians might not even be aware of the passages in the Bible that clearly denounce things like sorcery and divination, uh, communing with spirits, etc. Not that I think that's an excuse for Greg Locke to rave like a maniac, but most of those prohibitions about divination and sorcery, I think that's mostly in the Old Testament. I was actually curious what the New Testament had to say about that kind of thing, and I stumbled upon a little story via Bible Hub that I found strangely amusing. All right, so everyone get out your Bibles. Kidding. And I believe this is actually Acts 16.16. 16. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl with a spirit of divination who earned a large income for her masters by fortune-telling. 
This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued this for many days. Eventually, Paul grew so aggravated that he turned and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And the spirit left at that very moment. And then it takes a very kind of dark turn. When the girl's owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities in the marketplace. And so this is, you know, it goes into the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Um, but yeah, I found that kind of funny, like, he's putting up with this girl behind him, and she's, you know, she's actually, it sounds like she's doing a positive thing, she's actually promoting, um, Paul's work, and, but eventually he's like, I had enough, you're on my last nerve, you've been yelling in my ear for days, and he turns around and tells the spirit to be gone, and then I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here, was it an unclean spirit? who is going to potentially draw unwanted attention that would get them in trouble? Or was it, um, or was this actually an angelic or some kind of positive spirit, but Paul just got sick of that jazz and snapped? I don't know. But on that note, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. We ain't afraid of you, you stinking witch. We ain't afraid of you, you stinking witch. It's the power of Christ. That's okay. The power of Christ.